You're listening to the Pain Matters Podcast, presented by the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the nation's leading podcast for healthcare providers, focused on providing the best care today, tomorrow, and beyond. Each episode, we'll share the latest innovations and practical applications that directly impact how we care for patients and measure success in multidisciplinary care. Let's get started. Welcome back to Pain Matters. I'm your host, Dr. Shravni Durbakala, anesthesiologist and pain physician at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the founder and host of PainRounds.org. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to have Dr. Brian Mariscalchi on our show. Brian is on faculty at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He's great in the operating room as an anesthesiologist and with his patients in clinic as a pain specialist. But what really impresses everyone about Brian beyond his clinical skills are his serial successes in med tech entrepreneurship, his palpable passion for innovation, and his tried and tested formula for inventing and commercializing solutions to noted healthcare gaps. Welcome to our show, Brian. Hi, Shravni. Thank you for the very kind introduction and for having me on the podcast. I'm very excited to be here today. So, Brian, even before you completed your training at Johns Hopkins as a pain medicine fellow, you had actually received National Science Foundation grants for your medical device company. To say the least, that's a huge accomplishment. I mean, I think the acceptance rate for those grants are, what, like 17% of people who apply actually get the grant. And at that time, everyone was wondering, you know, how does this fellow have all of this knowledge about innovation and patenting and... Did you have any kind of formal training that helped you navigate that? Well, I had both formal training as well as informal training. And my informal training began when I was very young. And together with my father, we would take apart everything and put it back together again. And we would take apart anything we could get our hands on, whether it was cars or computers or electronics or appliances. And just started teaching me you know, how to question how things were made and how could you make them better. But more formally, when I was a medical student at NYU, I I took a research year where I did a fellowship in biodesign, and my mentor, Thomas Errico, is a very accomplished pediatric spine surgeon and entrepreneur with multiple patents, and he founded several biotech companies. And I had the opportunity firsthand to see the process, and I realized that a physician could really change the scope of medical care through innovation. And what a great point, because um, I think a lot of people think about physicians and they just think about who do you go to when you have high blood pressure, right? Or when you have thyroid dysfunction, you don't think about a physician and think, well, this person's going to change the world by inventing and commercializing products. So what an incredible experience that you must have had training with Dr. Erico on innovation and seeing what he was able to accomplish. So, Brian, I understand that your earliest invention, Numico, is a medical device that uses intelligent alerting to provide real-time feedback about how well somebody is resuscitating somebody who is getting CPR. So how well are they providing breaths to the patient? And specifically, is the volume, pressure, and rate of breaths that are being delivered appropriate, or are they inappropriate and potentially going to cause trauma to a patient? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, first I, I had this idea for, you know, many years when I was in, in residency before I, you know, formally patented it. Uh, at the time, I couldn't really talk about it. I had to wait until a, a preliminary patent w- was uh, submitted. And this is very important for other people to know because, 
if you in the United States disclose your invention or idea grand rounds or in a publication or a podcast like this in the US, you only have 12 months to then submit a provisional patent with the patent office. Otherwise, your invention goes into the public domain where anyone could use it. Outside of the United States, however, the second you disclose something publicly, this is now in the public domain and you have no protection. You've lost it. Wow. Well, I'm so glad that you said that today on this podcast, because for people listening, I mean, it's really tempting to want to talk about whatever you're doing because you're excited about it and you would want to probably tell people or put it on a podcast or, you know, and and that's not really in your best interest, at least until there is a formal patent in place. So tell us about Numico. So we know what it is and we know that you patented it during residency. Uh, But what inspired you to actually create this product? So this is a you know sad story, and I was inspired when I was uh, in a transitional year in Manhattan, and I was doing a trauma surgery rotation when I was called for a level one pediatric trauma. A mother set down a bassinet in the road, and a taxi cab hit it. Um, the patient was brought into the trauma bay and started doing all of the trauma resuscitation for the baby, getting lines and medications and x-rays, and the patient was intubated. And as this was all going on, we turned our attention back to the person who was ventilating for the child. And they were pushing as hard and as fast as they possibly could, uh, delivering pressures and volumes and rates that were far in excess of the guidelines. And uh, in addition to the you know, patient's injuries, the additional harm to the lungs was, was just too much and, and the patient ended up dying. Wow. And that is just so devastating because we know that, you know, with babies particularly, you have to be so careful with how much you're delivering in terms of the amount of air and the rate of breaths delivered and everything else. And while it seems really simple and very preventable, Without something like Numico, there really is no feedback that's available to people in the field. And this is probably a very common scenario. Uh, And all of this while you were an intern. So it took you from sort of envisioning this when you were an intern to later in your residency when you could actually patent it. Now, many of us have ideas about how we want to change the world and improve healthcare and reach, you know, the maximal number of people. But it's that process of taking an idea after you identify a need and turning it into a company that's super intimidating. So what were some of the steps that you needed to take before you could even get to the prototype? You know, the prototype, it's what you can touch and feel and everyone likes that. But there are so many steps before that. Yeah, the process starts really with knowing the problem better than anyone else and being able to describe it to others in lay terms. And you have to not only understand that problem better than anyone else, but you have to understand if there's a real need in the market for this. And if you made a solution, would it have value, economic value? What would this provide to you know the, the end users? And this involves a you know process where you take inventory through, through multiple different domains and you you know perform an assessment, uh, not only just looking at what the current literature is in an academic process, but beyond that, looking at a stakeholder analysis, a market analysis, looking at other patents, looking at other companies that might be out there, what products might be in the market currently, and, and taking that total assessment. So there's a ton of research that goes into this. You've got to figure out what is actually going on in the field. Do you have a real problem or... Is this a problem that already has a solution? Um, are there already solutions out there? Or are you the first 
And um, what's the value of the solution? If you were to create a solution, would that solution even have impact? And is it something that people want and need and are willing to invest in? So there's all of these kind of stages before you can get to the inventing and the prototyping. And so you want to make sure that if you put time and money and effort into creating something, it's really addressing a gap and it's going to stand a chance to become a successful company. Yeah, and that challenges, um, you know, even the best. And it challenges individuals who go through this process and even individuals who go through this process with the help of universities. Uh, the, the process of invention and patenting ideas, you know, is actually straightforward for many universities. And they sit on thousands and thousands of, of patents, but many of them are unused. And that means that they haven't taken that patent and gave permission to a company to use that patent to produce a product. And that's the challenge is to transition that inventor uh, who thought of that idea and place them in a company with that technology that had been licensed and patented and allow them to you know, propel that technology further and commercialize it and push it as far as they can. Yeah, I mean, you said a lot of sort of keywords there, and I think a lot of people have you know, confusion around all of this, like patents and licenses. So let's break it down a little further. What exactly is a patent? Yeah, a patent is a legal document, if you will. It has a lot of different components, and a lot of them could be administrative just for categorizing or, or identifying a patent. But then there's an owner of a patent, the person who truly owns it, like an owner of a house. Then you have the inventor, maybe like the builder of the house, and then there's claims and clauses of a patent, and that's where the real information is of a patent. It's what distinguishes this uh, from what else is out there, and it's what's not only novel and unique, but it's also what's not obvious to a professional in the field and how you do uh, a certain process or how you create a certain product. So then what is a license? So the license is a legal document that is separate from a patent, and it allows you to then have temporary or permanent ownership of that patent for the purpose of building a product in a company. And then so it's the company that comes along and sort of licenses the patent? That is correct. Okay, so if you are a startup founder um, and you're at a university, so let's say, you know, Brian, I'll use you as an example. So you created this product, Numico, you patented it, the idea, and then you went ahead and actually created a startup company. So now the goal is for the startup company to gain enough funding that it could license the patent from the university and ultimately the patent becomes the startup founder's uh, property. That is uh correct and that is kind of the you know ideal scenario and if though the inventor was a physician and was unable to do that then they would only have that license and they would never participate in the company but the end goal is that that inventor not only invents and patents but also ends up in the company to help lead it and see that vision through well, thank you for clarifying that. I think that's a point that a lot of people are confused about. And I remember when you gave grand rounds at Johns Hopkins, there were like 20 questions about that at the end. And so uh, again, yeah, thank you. So I remember, you know, you had one prototype at the time that you were applying for your patent, which you were showing me in the simulation lab. And it was really kind of big and 
bulky, this huge system. And now you have a device that fits in the palm of your hand. It can fit in an emergency crash cart and even in the scrub pocket. Yeah, prototyping is an iterative process and it goes through multiple different revisions to refine it. And you start out by just uh, talking with engineers to build this product and telling them the scope of it and going through what are the requirements, what are the regulatory requirements, the quality control requirements, the end user requirements. And you build a first prototype. After that, you have to make sure that it does what it says it's supposed to. And then further, you take that and you start putting it in the hands of end users and do use case testing to optimize that device for use in the field with real users and potential customers. So prototyping builds over those many different stages into something that eventually will be submitted to the FDA for regulatory approval if in the United States and also um, to manufacturing and transition to manufacturing. Now, venture capitalists and funding agencies, they want to give you money potentially, but they want to also touch and feel something before they invest in it. So they want this prototype and they want to see it. But the problem is that the prototype is expensive to create. So where does the money for these initial phases actually come from? Yeah, you absolutely want to put something down on the table and show others uh, your vision and idea in the best format that you can. And funding is what drives that you know, prototyping process, and it's challenging to, to, to find. In the early stages of a company, this can come from your own personal funds. And that's nice because it your own company and your own idea, so you're not diluting or taking shares out of that company and giving it to someone else. You're maintaining full ownership uh, when you put your own money in. But dilutive sources uh, where you're giving a piece of the equity and shares in the company away to someone else can come from friends and family rounds where your friends and family give you money for this idea in exchange for shares in the company. There's also incubators and accelerators, which are organizations that uh, will help you and mentor you through that process and give you many resources, not just funding, uh, but also perhaps engineering support or business support and grant writing support to help you along the way, but they will take some part of the company in exchange. And when the company grows a little bit further, you can apply for more competitive grants like Small Business Innovative Research Grants, SBIR grants from the National Science Foundation or the NIH. And those are excellent. It's uh, just beyond uh, uh, you know anything else that is out there because you don't have to give away any piece of the company in exchange for millions in grants that come in multiple different phases. And once you win the first one, which as you alluded to, maybe 15, 17% chance of winning, the subsequent phases are 60% plus in terms of winning. And then later, uh, late stage companies gain money through venture capital uh, once they kind of uh, either start having a product in the market or, or on that verge of it, and also from other companies as well who could fund them or partner. And again, I mean, I just want to come back to this idea that these National Science Foundations um, grants as well as these NIH grants are, are amazing because they don't take that sort of equity. And so you're getting free money. Um, and that's difficult to do. And I imagine that being in a university system probably helped you sort of get those types of grants. And so what are the advantages and disadvantages of doing this in the university system? 
So there are some advantages of uh, you know patenting and uh, commercializing technologies in academic centers, and every university for the most part should have a technology ventures uh, division where they will help you and pay for and provide you with the lawyers to patent your ideas. They will uh, review it and um, decide if they're going to patent, and if they do, they will kind of take you through the provisional patent and then the utility patent afterwards. But the nice thing about that is when you are then asking grant committees or investors for funding, you now have that support to show them that we hold the dominant intellectual property position and my university has given this the stamp of approval and my university has put up the funds and believe that it's worth that to protect it and have a uh, you know dominant intellectual property position that others can't compete against. And there are some you know, disadvantages, and that is that when you disclose the technology to a university, and if you are a faculty at a university, often in the contract for you being employed there, if a idea or invention is in relation to your day job, you have to disclose it. You can't go outside the university. So you're going to have to disclose it anyways, unless you're not part of a university system. But if you disclose it at a university, they will take a portion of the royalties or shares in the company uh, or milestone payments in exchange for patenting it for you. Got it. So they will help you. They take a little bit to help you, but that's negotiable. And in theory, like we talked about before, if you have a company with funding, you could buy it all back. And then it would be you know, part of the company in which they might not have shares. Absolutely. This licensing agreement would just be a legal document that would be negotiable and you would be able to negotiate on all of those terms. Well, thanks for clarifying that. Let's pivot a little bit now to your other product, PainScored, which is a digital health platform that does remote patient monitoring and creates this comprehensive reimbursable picture of what is happening with patients' mood, pain, and functionality in between their doctor's appointments. Um, this product has actually received venture capital funding and is being in use being used in many pain centers throughout America. What is the appeal of digital health products over some other types of products that you could create? Yeah, so digital health products have some advantages and uh, particularly over medical devices when it comes to commercializing uh, a, a end product. And these advantages include a lower cost, um, as you would expect. The digital health products are much cheaper to bring to market than, let's say, a pharmaceutical which could cost a billion dollars in uh, 10 years or more. And somewhere in between is medical devices. And one uh, challenge with digital health products, though, is that because it's a little bit uh, cheaper, uh, you often have to bring the initial product to market, prove that it has a need and that it has a value and start making money with real customers in a marketplace um, before additional grant funding and additional support would, would follow suit. Uh, so it is you know, kind of cheaper um, to do, but it's also easier to scale and grow a digital health company because you don't necessarily have to worry about manufacturing, distribution, sales, warranties, getting products in people's hands and, and training them on, it, uh, on, a, on a physical product. When it comes to digital health, I mean, you see a lot of ideas and platforms that are not actually patented. So does the value of a patent change when it comes to the digital health market? 
So it can, and that's where it gets challenging. You know, you have to have a uh, lawyer who specializes in that domain to be able to see what is and is not patentable in a, in a digital realm, because that's much uh, different and sometimes abstract or theoretical when you're talking about code rather than a physical product you can put in front of somebody. Um, but that is definitely a barrier or a moat you can put around your company to protect it. And if you have something that is patentable in a digital realm, you would absolutely want to go through that same process of patenting. Gotcha. Okay. So, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. It'll make probably even more sense when our next guest speaks. I don't know if you know, Brian, but we're going to have the head of digital technologies at Massachusetts General Hospital and the Harvard system talking to us about exactly this, about how you go about creating digital products um, in an academic center and do they need patents and all of this kind of stuff in the next episode. Well, that's fantastic and I can't wait to tune in. Yeah. So Brian, before we finish up here, I want to know, do you ever feel like you're flying solo? I mean, there just aren't many people who have done what you have done before. Um, some of the ones who have are actually on our podcast, on our show. Uh, but where do you find mentorship when there's just so few people who are doing this? Yeah, the process is tough. There's no two ways about it. But, you know, if it was easy, everyone would do it. Uh, the bottom line is that, you know, th this whole process, uh, it makes you oscillate between, you know, kind of these silent successes and silent failures, and you do need kind of mentorship uh, to succeed. And there isn't many people who have succeeded at this, but if you do search deep within your networks, you, you will find someone who has done this. And these networks and connections for, for mentors and even potentially your business partners come from strange and unassuming places. Your connections happen at air, you know, airports or even when you're sitting next to somebody uh, on an airplane. And it happens at meetings and through social networks. And I think the key for that is having your elevator pitch down and being able to you know find your next mentor or business partner in these unassuming places and being ready for, um, for, for, for meeting them. Yeah, well, that's great advice because you really don't know when you're going to meet that person that um, is going to really change the future of your technology. And uh, Brian, I, before we go, I do have to ask you actually one more thing. Um, are you mad that you sort of missed the cutoff for Forbes 30 under 30 list? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's very funny. Uh, per perhaps we will will be shooting for uh, fifty under fifty. <laughs> if that exists, I don't know what the next one after no. <laughs> thirty under thirty is. Um, but we're all looking forward to seeing you on the Forbes list one day. So thank you for being here, Brian, and thank you to the AAPM for hosting this podcast for us. And we will see you next time. Well, thank you so much, Ravni, for having me again. Uh, my pleasure to be here today. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Pain Matters Podcast. If there's anything we mentioned in today's show you missed, don't worry. We take the notes for you at painmed.org slash podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, please consider pressing the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss a future episode. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review to help us reach and educate even more of our peers in pain medicine.